If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The Starter Edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. Hey, Carl here with a very special offer for music to code by. You can now get the whole 20-track collection for $19.99 while electrons last. Go to my new store at pwop.e-junkie.com. That's p-w-o-p dot e-junkie.com. And get it now before I change my mind. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are, you know, Merry Christmas, buddy, I guess. Yeah, uh, Christmas Eve, you know, through the future of time shifting. I think we recorded this a month before this, but, you know, yeah. life is complicated. It's November 18th right now, but yet it's Christmas mm-hmm. Eve right now. I, yet it's Christmas Eve, and I hope you're, you know, with your loved ones and having a good time and decided to listen to a podcast when nobody was looking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, man, Scott Hunter is here. I can't wait to talk to Scott. It's always fun. You know, he is a super genius. I heard that about him, actually. Yeah, he's a super genius. He's the wily e. Coyote of Microsoft. Um, <laughs> before we go any further, let's do the uh, Better Know Framework. So, roll the music. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? I found this while browsing Facebook, and I don't know, Facebook seems to think that I like gadgets for some reason, and I don't know why, but go to (laughs) microclimate.com. What? Microclimate.com. Basically, there's this company that makes a helmet. That uh, has <laughs> fans in it and air filters. Okay. And it's clear. It looks like a space helmet. Wow. Uh, it's called Air. It's 300 bucks. And How it's pandemic savvy. It's such a pandemic thing. And I'm sorry that I didn't show you before Christmas Eve. Well, you, you now have time to order one, yeah. but I might, I might actually have time, but nobody else will. But you know, uh, this looks very much like the helmet for the SpaceX suit. Hmm. You know, they just did that, that there's just that flight to the space station. But it, of course, it's white, but it's sort of the very much the same style. Right. Although I don't think I'd want to try and take this helmet into space, seeing how it doesn't have the suit part. Well, it also has this anti-fogging thing, like, so it's not going to yeah. fog up on you. And I, I talked to my wife because we have four kids between us. Mm-hmm. And I said, would this make good Christmas presents for our kids? She <laughs> says, my girls are too claustrophobic. They'll never, ever wear anything like this. And I said, well, what is, what is stronger in your children? Uh, claustrophobia or hypochondria? And I, I, and I don't mean that in a flip way. I don't mean like they no. exaggerate medical conditions, but germophobia, maybe. I mean, are they more yeah. concerned about catching the virus than they are about being claustrophobic? I guess that's the way, the thing you have to weigh it, you know? Well. How many people are going to get helmets for Christmas? It's because it's that or video cards, apparently. Uh, right. I'm with you. Right. <laughs> I want to hear what uh, Super Genius has to say about that. Yeah, about the helmet. Absolutely. So, that's what I got today. Love it. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1634, which we did with one Scott Hunter back in May of 2019, talking about .NET Core 3 and beyond. Mm. And one of the reasons I grabbed this show was that it was really when we started talking about .NET 5, you know, 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. Really, so I'm sure they were in the plan. And and Rod Falanga, who's been a long time listener, and this will not be his, you know, first time. I'm sure he already has music to code by as well. But he had such a great comment. He said, "Finished listening to this episode on my commute yesterday. Wow, what a great episode!" Yeah, I admit when Microsoft first came out with .NET Core, I was skeptical. I thought Microsoft was just trying to do away with Windows and just focus exclusively on the web. I didn't see the vision that they had. Now with .NET Core three coming, and I'm sure Rod's referring to you know, bringing forward wind forms and all those, you know, all of the client side technologies. I am so excited as a developer writes both web and windows apps. I'm very excited to have core involved in both. 
Another thing that really blew me away was how Scott described WebAssembly in relationship to Blazor. And I've been hearing about WebAssembly for quite a while now, but it wasn't until this episode that I finally got it. So thank you, Scott Hunter. You are a super genius. <laughs> I may have editorialized a little bit there. Just a little bit. <laughs> Hey, Rod, thanks again for another great comment, and uh, we'll hook you up with another copy of Music to Code by I've got your email address. I'll hunt you down. Or a mug. He must have an array of mugs by now. He probably has an array of mugs as well. Yeah, for yeah. sure. All right. That's my that's the comment. Welcome, friend. Yeah, welcome, Scott. I don't even need to introduce <laughs> you. You are Mr. .NET. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have to start with something very different. Um, I hope it co- shows up on the camera good enough for you to see. Can you... Uh, mm-hmm. Can you... Oh my god. Oh, have you got tiger striped hair? You've got a woolly bear haircut. It's tiger striped hair. Wow. So you lost a bet with your daughters? <laughs> no. Um, so uh, every October, Microsoft has what's called a giving campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where uh, we try to raise money for charity inside of Microsoft. And with COVID, you know, the options are way more limited this year than they were in the past. And so what I did is I auctioned sure. my hair color for a month. Um, to the highest bidder, um, and raised a couple grand uh, to a couple charities, um, and so. But uh, I thought when I did, I got it done, I was going to hide it. But I'm actually kind of kind of proud of it now. So I've been I've been showing it off everywhere I go because it's uh, it's awesome. Did the winner get to choose how you dyed it? Yes, they did. So it could have been green or purple. It could have been green or purple. The, or the, the winner was Emo, Emo Landworth, and oh. uh, he, oh, he had yeah. already sent me a text of 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 the tiger stripe. And, wow. Uh, <laughs> it was a new it was a new opening for me. Um, you know, I've never had my hair colored before, so I didn't know that you had to use different shampoo. I'm supposed to wash my hair with cool water in the morning, not hot water. Uh, so it's it's been a, an eye-opening experience of learning what, you know, people that color their hair all the time have to go through. So Well, you know, they could have used they could have emo could have said it's got to be purple and yellow like the .net 5 robot. You, you should, you'll have to ask Emo why it's not that. I, I, I would have been very happy to be .NET. And in fact, a funny thing about it was originally we were going to do it before the .NET uh, Conf keynote. Mm. Uh, but since we had Scott Guthrie on, I wasn't sure if he would... I'm not sure how he would take it. So we made <laughs> it until after the keynote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, if it was just straight red, it would have been fine. You would have blended it completely. In fact, didn't I see that keynote and you were wearing a red shirt? Uh, I was actually wearing a red shirt from the ASP, ASP.NET team back in like 2007. Um, wow. But uh, anytime we have, you know, Guthrie in a, in a keynote with Scott Hanselman and myself, we all have to bring red. So uh, you know, all red shirts. Scott was red. Scott Guthrie, I mean, Hanselman was red. I was red. And then, of course, we all know that Scott Guthrie is always going to be red. So what I really loved about that little talk that you guys had was how uh, Guthrie pulled out a notebook from when he was designing ASP.NET back in whenever, 2000, 1999, whenever it was. Yeah, 98. Uh, uh, 98 is what he said. I think 98, that's what he said. yeah. So, uh, that was something that we knew that he had. And because uh, some other people on my team had done meetings with him and he had brought that book out before. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. I mean, all the current software engineers are looking at that going, it's paper. Yeah, what is this? Um, yeah, paper thing. I, it's also the original drawings of request and response. I've met that book in person. And I don't understand why you people let him have it. Still, it should be in the archive. It should be like in pressurized nitrogen. <laughs> it should. It should be actually. Uh, um, you know, it's twenty years old. It's an artifact. I, I will talk to him about that. Actually, that 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 book should be put <laughs> in history somewhere. That book should not be yeah. sitting on his on his shelf in his house. Agreed. Yeah, I gotta, I'm, I'm gonna write his chief of staff and just suggest to her that she probably should put that, give that over to the, the historians at Microsoft. It's important. But, you know, also I, I, I want to say, you know, as part of, you know, .NET Conf was an amazing success this year. Uh, you know, it's the yeah. launch of .NET 5 for us. And, uh, uh, we had hundreds of thousands of visitors of streams that were viewed and, uh, over, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and roughly a hundred thousand people that came and, and watched. Uh, that day, which is pretty insane to me, and you know, for a virtual conference, you were telling us the numbers. It's almost twice as much as you were expecting, right? Yeah, it was. It was. It was so much that uh, we had warned uh, the live TV team inside of Microsoft that we were going to bring a crazy load. Uh, they didn't listen to us a hundred percent. Yeah, I noticed. We crashed <laughs> about for five or ten minutes, and they had to, to spool up. But the, the, the cool thing was. We uh, we broadcast on a conf across Twitch, YouTube, 
and uh, MS Learn TV, um, which meant if one of them went, um, it was fine because we had a backup stream right. uh, that somebody could right. use to. Because uh, YouTube actually had a, a, a worldwide outage during uh, our conference, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. It was short. It, but, but it is it interesting that a byproduct of the pandemic is just making all these online events like the events now. This mm-hmm. is not the lesser cousin in person. They've become their own things. And I, I was appreciating the approach you guys were taking, that you're starting to really use the video format as its own distinct way to communicate. Like it's, we're getting capabilities now and, and ways to interact with folks that I think are special. And you, like, you're not going to get a hundred thousand people to a conference. And if you did, like you, that's a whole other problem, but uh, it's great that, that we can have, that can reach this many people with this, with the new technology and, and we're getting better at it. Yeah. We're getting better at it. And I, I, uh, one of the things we, we made a conscious decision to do for .NET Conf, which I'm very proud of today is, is uh, it was real. I remember this, you might laugh. We, we spoke to Guthrie before saying, Hey, we want to have you on. And he goes, great. When are we going to record it? And we're like, uh, right. no, we're, we're not recording, sir. We're going to, we're going to go live. Um, but one of my favorite tweets that we got during that week was .NET Conf is, is presented by real humans. Mike kept on top of the head, speaking while muted, presenting slide without sharing screen. People saw that it was actually real, um, that we didn't try it. And mistakes were made. Yeah, we wanted it to be that way. It's not. It's not some yeah, professional, sure. crazy put together conference. This is just real developers on the team and in the community coming together to show people, you know, what they know about the technology. It was awesome. Well, I, I think back to like, was it Build twenty eighteen where where Guthrie came out to help Hanselman and held his mic for him and said, "I'm providing value here." You know, those really- turned into. Or maybe it was even twenty nineteen. Just seems longer ago because you know history stopped. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you talk about those are the memorable moments. Like that's what people grab onto are how we compensate with reality interfering with our stories. Uh, I, I loved, uh, you know, speaking of anecdotes like that, um, if you watched Scott Guthrie's keynote at Build this year, he came in and did the first part of it with with regular clothes on, but he walked out with um, PJ slippers and other stuff on. So even, even he was kind of showing <laughs> yeah. the fun of, of, you know, the world. I mean, we're working for 2020 is yeah. a crazy year and we have to have, we, we need to find ways to have fun in 2020 is what I would say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's been, it's been very challenging, but at the same time, uh, stuff still moves along and you guys have been really busy. I'm, uh, are you happy with .NET 5, Scott? Cause you know, I, I would think about that conversation 18 months ago, uh, the one that I referred to in the comment and the aspirations for .NET 5 and then were huge. And I, I remember talking then about, like, how much are you actually going to be able to get done? I think we're very happy with .NET 5. Um, you know, mm-hmm. with all the the world changes and the world events that occurred this year, the fact that we were able to stay on schedule and ship a product, uh, and the product has a lot of value to it, I think, um, mm-hmm. is a testament to the team, uh, engineering teams, uh, and the PM teams, uh, and the feedback from the customers. Um, I, I am actually very happy with all the things that we've done in, in the release. And, you know, we can, we can go through, you know, some of those, if you want to, you know, kind of go through a couple of those and talk to some of them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. You, you know, let, let's run down the list because there's so many things you, you took a big bite. So, you know, obviously the, the, the vision, the .NET 5 vision started off with a much bigger vision and, and, it, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, we, we kind of readjusted about mid year and, and adjusted the vision to be kind of the .NET 5, .NET 6 vision. Uh, but one right. of the big visions of .NET 5 is what we call unification. Right. Um, and unification means all the .NET project types use the new project system that we, we created with .NET Core. Um, and mm-hmm. then all the projects in .NET use the same DCL that we built for .NET Core. Um, and we got about halfway through that. Um, so um, if you look at .NET 5, um, the, the, the big one is Blazor, uh, right. uh, WebAssembly. Uh, that's if you want to build a you know a web application and you want the actual .NET code to run live in the browser, which means it can run disconnected. Um, that now does run on the core BCL, so you know that's a huge step for us is is to get that uh, over the hump, um, and that means you know once again for us in the engineering org, we want to make sure that we don't want to have three copies of the BCL. There's one in .NET Framework, there's one right. in Mono, there's one in, in, in .NET Core slash .NET 5. Um, and, and the core one is the new one, right? Like that's the agnostic rewritten one that's yes. more separated from Win32. 
And, and, and it also has a lot of the perf improvements. When you see the benchmarks and you see the perf, a lot of that is in that core BCL, um, which is mm-hmm. why we didn't bring it back to .NET Framework because that would be breaking changes that we made some of those, some of those updates are, are breaking. Um, but it means we're down to now uh, only the uh, iOS and Android apps uh, running in Xamarin are still using the mono BCL. Mm-hmm. And in .NET 6, we'll go the final step and we'll have all of the tech running on the same BCL, which means we fix a bug in one thing, it affects the entire platform. All those are fixed everywhere. Great. Um, but, and isn't the, but isn't the mobile platform the tough one? Like, it seems to be the smallest set. Like, how do you get everything in the core BCL to run on a phone? Well, in our case, remember, we already, you know, because of the .NET Core journey, um, the .NET Core BCL is only the the libraries that work on all the platforms. Cross-plat. Cross so, right. it, you know, it, it's already gone through that phase of, we don't put anything in the core BCL unless it can run on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Right. Um, and if you can run on Linux, you should be able to run on a phone for the most part. Right. Um, right. Um, same kind of thing for Blazor. Blazor actually has more restrictions. Because yeah. um, mm-hmm. you're in the sandbox. Yeah, it's running in a sandbox in a browser. Uh, and, and that was an area where we took a, a hidden step that people might not be aware of is there's now analyzers in Visual Studio that as you're writing a Blazor application will tell you if you use an app, if you use an API that doesn't work in the sandbox. For example, mm. you can't open the file system. You can't, right. you can't ask Obviously. for CPAC yeah. windows uh, in a Blazor WASM app for obvious reasons. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you can't do that in JavaScript either. It would, it would, it would break the platform, but you know that. So I, I think we're making progress in that unification. We're doing the .NET 6 planning right now. And, you know, the hope, the hope is that in the six way we'll get, uh, the Xamarin Tech onto that new BCL, and we'll get the Xamarin Tech onto the new project system, and we'll get the Xamarin Tech and the SDK. And that's really when this unificational. Will, and that was the aspiration in .NET five originally, and then you know world events and changes caused us to push that out a little bit. Right. Um, but there's sure. still a, a ton of value. Um, if I just kind of think of a few off the top of my head, um, we added a feature called single file uh, in the .NET Core three wave. And this lets you take a .NET application and turn it into a single file. We cheated in .NET Core 3. We actually zipped up the rest of, the, of, of .NET and stuck it in as a resource in, a, in, the, in the beginning of your application. When you click the app, we downloaded it, we, we extracted it to a temp folder and ran you out of there. Right. Uh, in .NET 5, that mechanism has gone. And now we actually just run mm-hmm. the app uh, right out of the single file. Uh, another cool thing that we did uh, in that same vein is... Um, we also have a linker and every release, we try to make the linker a little bit better. Um, and the linker is how you, okay, I want to build a microservice and I don't want to upload .NET and my microservice to my, to my container. Uh, right. You can name linker. And we made the linker a lot smarter, meaning that we attributed our own framework. Um, and so now you can build a, a basic ASP.NET web application um, and you can link that thing down to about 20 megs. Uh, and That's that includes cool. your app and the framework. Um, and so that's some investments we're doing in the kind of the, the cloud space, as, as I would say. That's the cloud native kind of kind of space. Um, Windows Desktop. You know, you mentioned in the intro, Richard, that... Uh, yeah, Rod. Uh, people were, were very happy about that. So the desktop stuff is done better than we expected. When we, when we put WPF and WinForms in uh, .NET Core 3.1, we thought mm-hmm. some people would move their applications over um, we've had over 200,000 people bring their apps over. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Because there's breaking changes, right? I mean, we had this conversation, and it may not have been on, even on .NET Rocks. I think we might have done it in Channel 9 as well, about to make DPI-sensitive WinForms, you can't have a pixel-perfect rendering from the old WinForms to the new one. You have to test. You have to check. And that just means hours of work. Right. Well, just even porting is not, you know, super simple. So, I mean, you're... It, but- yeah. But I, I will tell you the 200,000 users already that moved over is way more than we expected. And I'm super, ex- mm-hmm. super excited about that. And, you know, on top of that, um, the biggest request we got from that from people in 3.x was primarily we didn't have click once. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Click once is the tech that m- lets you easily just go through a wizard and build an installer for your .NET application. Um, and so based on the feedback we got from 3.1, um, we have brought click once back into .NET 5. Um, right. And so if you're a desktop developer, uh, click once is back. 
Um, and it supports the new app types that we have in, in, in .NET 5 as well. You can do the single file and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we really thought that people were so used to building their own installers that they didn't really want to use this tech. But the feedback was crazy that they want to use it. So we, we brought it back. Um, and then we, we kind of were close to closing the designer gap between uh, .NET Framework and .NET 5 as well. Um, we showed in the, in the keynote um, that third-party controls can now show up in the designer. Right. Uh, that's one nice. of the last, last pieces that was left. Um, we're comically enough, Richard, we're actually fixing some high DPI problems with the designer right now. Um, we ran in, it, it doesn't like multi-monitor systems. Let's say you have one monitor that's, that's one aspect ratio, another that's another. Um, for people yep. that don't know how we actually do the designer, um, because Visual Studio is a .NET framework-based application, we have to run uh, a, a secondary process uh, for the designer, and then we blit that process into VS. Um, and imagine if that process is on one monitor, your VS is on the other monitor, things don't line up right. No, they get very unhappy. Uh, I have two workstations here, and one of them is a tw has a 21.9 beside a 16.9 monitor. And I just stopped running Studio on it because it makes it sad. I have the the, <laughs> the the 4K screen on the other machine that's, that's just one screen. That's where Studio lives it's because that, and I admit it, that's a hard problem. Yeah. And running different resolutions, different scaling effects. Like, uh, but I'm glad you guys are working on it. It's that's a tough one. We're working on it. I'm, I'm moving up to uh, I'm moving up to a 49 inch curved screen myself. I'm actually working on the spousal of, uh, acceptance factor. It's hard with screens because you know it's like a luxury. You know that's why we it, gave it them away. Seems like a luxury, but they're straight it, it productivity. Would, right? If I got they one. The spouse would want one as well, so that would be the, the challenge. It would oh, be just to go. want it. Good. That's a good. So the trick is to get her the first one. That's the answer. Right? Yeah. Right. And then when she says, "I uh, hate this. Wait. I don't want it anymore," you take it. That you take it over. And if she loves it, and it's like, well, if you love it, then I should love it too, and you get another one. <laughs> I love the way you guys think. This is great. You know, back back in the old days when the when the spouse had her own office, I would go away for two weeks. I'd come home, there'd just be stuff missing from my office. <laughs> Right. She's like, I need another monitor. A monitor leaves. And so to me, that was not, you have stolen my stuff. It's like, I get new stuff. So <laughs> that was my excuse to replace things. Getting back to Windows Forms for a minute. Um, maybe people don't realize how, just how many developers are doing, still doing Windows Forms and keeping up those, those projects. The number is staggering, isn't it? It's, it's in the millions. That's crazy. So, uh, yeah. which, which might stun people that, that, uh, cause yeah, I think we all think we're in the web, web world, the blazer world, but there's millions of developers building these apps today. And there's still plenty of reasons where desktop is just a better choice. I mean, mm -hmm. um, we were just talking to a.NET customer, uh, a few weeks ago, Dan Daniel Roth and I were, and, uh, this was a customer that, that built an application that runs the dry cleaners. Mm. And while they could put it on the web, it needed to have access to the cash register. Mm. It needed to have access to the uh, some of the displays they have in the in the in the in the facility. Local to show you what right. your thing is, um, and so that can't be a pure web app because it needs access to local resources and local stuff. And they could have done some yeah. crazy services to try to make the cash register in the cloud, but that doesn't sound safe to me. I don't think I want my cash register drawer to be a cloud service. Um, I think I would keep that on. Yeah. Or you're changing out all the hardware, right? Like now you have multiple machines with encrypted connections right. and dependency on internet, you know, in commercial properties is, is always a challenge. Like, what are you doing? Just be able to use one machine for all of mm. that, right? Like, it's, it seems like a simpler answer. Uh, and, so, I, you know, yeah, and I totally agree with you. So many products where, you know, software shows up in a lot of places, not just neatly on a desktop machine with a big screen and, and can run any browser you want. Um, yeah. Another thing that we've, we've continued, which I'm happy is, is kind of a kind of a team culture now is, you know, you folks have heard, heard us talk about performance time and time again. Uh, mm -hmm. Five continues that performance, bringing uh, a ton of performance improvements. I mean, uh, the tech power benchmark, which we talked about on this show before, that's kind of the public benchmark. That's kind of our linchpin. Mm -hmm. And we have two real goals in the .NET 5 way, which is we've been great at plain text forever. But we want to get much better in JSON, um, and we want to get much better in what's called fortunes. So the fortunes benchmark is one that makes database calls and writes screens of, of HTML. The JSON benchmark is just serializing JSON over the wire. Um, 
And here, here, here are the uh, performance improvements. Plain text uh, in .NET 5 compared to 3.1 is 38% faster. Nice. At 11 million, seven, uh, 11 million requests per second, almost 12 million requests per second. Uh, JSON is up 42%, uh, which will put us above Java in this benchmark. That was our goal. Um, that's at 1.2 million requests per second. Wow. Um, and then Fortunes, which is the crazy database one that does all the, the uh, lots of work, um, we're up 20% uh, up into the 417,000 requests per second. Um, and so I just want to iterate that we will continue making each version of .NET faster and faster. And uh, we've seen amazing results internally with some of our teams that run their services you know, inside of Microsoft on .NET where they're saving 25% um, over year over year when they move uh, from .NET Framework to .NET Core. Wow. Um, if you wow. want me to talk about is <clears throat> socket performance on Linux. You know, Linux is a big thing for us, up 30% over 3.1. JSON serialization uh, is up 20% um, over 3.1. Uh, serialization of large collections and arrays is three times faster and is zero ALEC now. Wow. And then gRPC, which is kind of our, I, I think, a modern DubCF in many ways because it is cross-platform. Yep. Um, we are faster than uh, Go. We are faster than C++. We are faster than Java. Um, and we are just a hair tick below Rust. Uh, but that was taken on a, on, a, on a run of the benchmark before we actually RTM. We think we might be faster, but this benchmark hasn't been publicly run since we shipped. And so I, any, any .NET customer, if you move from 3.1 to, to 5, you are going to see perf improvement across the board. Regex got faster. Uh, lots of lots of stuff that's that's still going on there. And that turns into real that's money, awesome. doesn't it? I mean, you're saving money. Yeah, if you're running the, especially in the cloud, it's so clear how when you save money on that stuff. I think the money thing is more important than we think because you know historically, if you erase the last five years, maybe three years, if you built an app and you ran it on a server and you bought a new server three years later, that server is going to be probably twice as fast as it was before. Easily, uh, yeah. And, and But we're seeing a slowdown in the year-over-year -year performance gains uh, on the on the chipsets that we run on. Right. Um, yeah, we're, we're coming to the end of Moore's Law, right? Like, they're running out of silicon atoms. <laughs> <laughs> the five nanometer process, I think each transistor is 60 atoms wide. Like, what are you going to do? Right. Exactly. Um, and so... We had an we had a paper that went through the inside of Microsoft saying that you know because of this uh, we have to write more efficient software and yeah. uh, that's the way to you know you know you're aware that you know if, especially us like Azure that's a that's a Cox business that's that's uh, totally yeah it, that's full based on you know cost of goods and the only way to make the, your a profit better in those kinds of worlds is to lower the cost of your goods. And the only way to do that is to mm -hmm. write more efficient software. And so we think that the, uh, as we think of energy and we think of, you know, CO2 and all those things, more efficient software will help the world too. Without a doubt. But I'm just looking for the perspective of you can measure the, the CPU utilization of any given app services pretty easily. So you could take a build, run it for a quarter, take those numbers, give a new build that pushes over to core, run another quarter, and compare the dollar amounts. Mm. Like, you're literally going to see the dollar difference there. Yeah. The thing that blows me away about your list of perf is Golang. Like, I mm -hmm. I was under the impression, and I think it was when we were talking to Anthony Eden, wasn't it? That, that he yep. said Go is just so much faster than anything, including, you know, C Sharp and .NET. This was a long time ago. And so, you know, we, we all got the idea that Go was like the holy grail of speed, you know, when it comes to processing. And here you are, beating it. Playing, yeah, playing in the same ballpark. Yeah, the uh, Go is something we look at a lot internally, actually. Um, mm. I don't want to get myself into trouble, but we actually do compare ourselves with Go. Um, we recently did a benchmark, and we've not, we've not had a chance to publicize it in a way, and that's Partially, we don't want to publicize benchmarks in some cases because I, I don't think of, um, like for people that are hearing this, I don't just build .NET. I also build Java at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at Microsoft, we're, we're an all-language company. So, you know, the team I work in, you know, we build C++, we build Python, we build Java, we build .NET. You know, we touch all the languages. And so um, I don't want to turn things into language wars. Um, you know, my right. job is to say if you have .NET skills, 
we're going to make those .NET skills be so good, you don't have to look at something else. That's more of how I think of it versus, you know, it's not a this versus that kind of kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, don't be switching languages because of performance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we do run a bunch of stuff internally to go compare ourselves to Ruby and compare ourselves to Go and sure. to Rust. And, sure. uh, um, and one of the interesting benchmarks that we, we put together recently was, as we think of containers, uh, in many cases, they're constrained, meaning they're, they have they might run in smaller memory footprints and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of our benchmarking showed that the only two techs that really stand up in really small benchmarks, meaning we could run that tech empower benchmark at full performance uh, on a machine with you know less than 500 megs of RAM, uh, or 256 nice. megs of RAM, uh, Go and .NET are the two that stand up the best there. Go uses a little less memory than us, um, but our perf is pretty much uh, equivalent to them. Um, and it's one of my list of things to go figure out is why we use a little more memory than they do. Um, sure. we, there's, there's guesses internally that it might be UTF-8 kind of stuff. Strings hmm. could be our problem, why we use more memory. Hmm. Um, but, you know, my point is, we have a culture of looking at this, and it's something we we are continually looking at. And I, I hope to publicize some of that too, just so people can see some of the some of the things that we compare. Right. Um, you know, speaking of perf, you know, Blazor. Before before we dive into Blazor, Scott, I want to break for one moment for this very important message. You know, since the pandemic, most of us are cooking and eating at home. We don't frequent restaurants like we used to, but we do have to shop for food which can put us at risk. One solution is to subscribe to a meal kit delivery service like EveryPlate. You might think it's more expensive to have fresh ingredients shipped to your door, but EveryPlate dinners are cheaper than takeout and way cheaper than delivery. In fact, one EveryPlate meal costs about the same as a latte. And we're talking fresh ingredients, meats, vegetables, herbs, spices, everything you need to cook a delicious meal with no wasted food in about 30 minutes. That's less time than it takes to shop and cook, to call for takeout, or have a pizza delivered. That's why I subscribe to EveryPlate. And now you can get three weeks of EveryPlate meals delivered to your door for just $2.99 a meal. That's three weeks of meals for $2.99 per meal. Go to everyplate.com and enter the code .NET3. That's everyplate.com and enter the code DOT. N-E-T-3. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey. Talking to our friend Scott Hunter, our favorite super genius, <laughs> and also the leader of .NET. And uh, we get to talk about Blazor next, because there was good stuff at Blazor oh, yeah. at .NET Comp. For, uh, for Lots .NET of Comp. good stuff at Blazor. Um, uh, you know, once again, we, we started off talking about that unification, and Blazor is one of the first parts that... Uh, for any of the uh, ahead of time, that's, uh, you know, AOT stands for ahead of, t ahead of time. Mm -hmm. That's where we use the model runtime because that's where it's best tuned for. We use that for iOS and Android because we need to be native on those devices. Right. Uh, WebAssembly is, is a native technology. Um, and so Blazor is based on Mono. Um, the Blazor, Blazor WebAssembly is. Um, and we moved the BCL from the Mono BCL to the core BCL. So I'm happy about that. Um but if you look at the tech all up, that's that's one of the aspects. So it uses the same APIs as the rest of .NET. Um, uh, it's three times faster than the previous release. Nice. That's a work of BCL. That's a work of the of the tool chains. Um, so we had a massive perf improvement uh, from Blazor Wasm 3.1 to Blazor Wasm 5.0. Um, one of my favorite features in in, in uh, the tech as well is, you know. We've all seen the web page that you get to it and it starts off with a spinning circle or something um, because it's, it's literally running code to go fetch data and stuff. Um, so we added uh, server-side pre-rendering, which means now the first page in your Blazor app can come up immediately uh, you know, when you when you launch the page. Um, nice. Do you mean client-side pre-rendering? Uh, server-side pre-rendering. Because you had server-side pre-rendering in Blazor server. No, but we're, we, we, we sort of did. Okay. When you say that, if I had Blazor app that was going to go call something and run some Blazor code to go build the page, that didn't run on the server. Um, that ran on the client. Um, and that we can run once on the server for you now before we run it on the client. And so you get that. that so we're still talking a WebAssembly application, though. Okay. Um, 
And we can also lazy load all the dependencies now too. So imagine yes. you brought your laser app up before. Well, the first thing we did was load everything. And, and right. that meant you had to wait for the whole app to kind of come into memory. Now we can basically load things as they come, which means that first page once again will pop faster. Uh, maybe you pay a slight performance on the next page, but it makes the overall app you know, feel a lot faster. You'll be happy to know that I am working on a new version of .NET Rocks in Blazor using the virtualization together with some caching on the on the back end. It's going to be stinky fast. Um, I, I don't know if you saw, uh, but uh, uh, Daniel Roth did an amazing demo um, at .NET Conf where we yeah. were using some of the new virtualization tech as well, which is we made it much easier. Imagine, you know, like, like uh, some of my customers, uh, they actually call themselves my grid customers. Um, they basically build apps full of grids um, and they have millions of rows of data. And one of the first tests for them, whether it's any technology, whether it's Flutter or it's, or it's Blazor or whatever is, hey, let's go take all the text out there and shove 7 million rows into a grid and see what happens. Because um, you need yeah. that. You do. <laughs> you do. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we built a bunch of cool tech in, dot, in Blazor, Blazor for .NET 5 that helps make that easier. So before some of the component vendors did the virtualization for you, but now we built that tech directly into the tech. Um, and Dan Daniel showed a, an amazing demo where he started off with a small number of rows and then cranked it up to an insane number of rows. In fact, we were on a call and he was doing 100,000 and I'm like, why not just do a million? And he goes, yeah. oh, I can change it to a million. Yeah, sure. Um, and the perf just stays the same. And it, and it held together. Wow. Okay. Uh, he actually can show, uh, um, as he's, he's showing the browser tools next to the app, and as he's scrolling the list, you can see it making the calls to get the data. Because um, what you yes. don't want to do is make the call to get you know a million rows and then shove that into a web page because that, that will not go well. That's not going to happen. 20-minute load time. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> Ooh, Yeah. But I think that's that's some of the really cool tech that we've done in the Blazor space in, in .NET 5 uh, that I think everybody will uh, will benefit from. Yeah, for sure, without a doubt. And that virtualization works on the server side, Blazor server, as well as on Blazor client, right? Yeah. It does, yes. It's very cool. Pretty much everything we do in Blazor, we try to make work on both. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm still, even though people get excited about Blazor WASM, I'm really more excited about Blazor server. I love server Blazor still. server. Um, because it gives you the smallest footprint on the client. It's fast. Um, and it's super fast because of, because it's it's the footprint is so small. Mm. Um, I think sometimes people get enamored with the, oh, it's cool because it's running WebAssembly. <laughs> um, but a, yeah. a Blazor server app is wicked fast and doesn't put a lot of load on the, the client browser. And so I I, yeah. I still recommend, you know, like we, we had one customer that I just, I just talked to a week or so ago and, and they, they run both ways. Mm. I always end up on the web performance side of things and saying like, how is, it, is this going to scale? Although I also recognize that a huge number of these apps, especially internal apps, like it doesn't matter. You know, you've got a thousand users or 10,000 users internally. They're using it occasionally. Like your server performance is going to be fine. Mm -hmm. The low footprint, it makes a bigger difference. It's only when you get out in the public web where it's like, is this a site that's going to deal with millions of users? And even then it's like, well, it's the cloud today. You can just dial that up as opposed to depending on what is the, the, the client. And if, you know, what if it's a phone? And what if is it an old machine? What if it is across a very linked connection? Like mm -hmm. you're, you're, the more client dependencies you take, the more the all of those things matter to the quality of the experience. Um, one one final area uh, that I want to land on is is uh, another area that we really care about is is you know the cloud native space, um, and we took a step um, in .NET five as well there. So if you build an ASP.NET Web API. Uh, we now include Open API in your project by default. Um, it used to be that you'd have to go figure out, hey, what package do I need? Wire it up. Um, and we did this because we want to make the developer experience really, really good. Um, mm -hmm. So for one of these 5.0 projects, if you control F5, your, your web API, you'll get a screen where you can actually test the API from a web interface. Um, and so we, yeah, to me, that makes makes that inner loop even better. But the other part of it, which is, uh, we've had tooling for a while in in the, our our tool chain, all the way from Visual Studio to Command Line, that we can build your client for you automatically. Um, but of course, we can only do that if you actually wired this thing up yourself 
And we did a, a right. user study and found out that everybody loved the feature, but 80% people didn't know how to wire it up themselves. So we've now wired it up for you. It's, it's in the box by default. Uh, it gives you a great Control F5, F5 experience. It gives you a great client generation experience. Um, and it enables other things too. Like you can, if you want to use Azure API management, well, we actually have publishing tools to go there and, and API management can read that, that definition and know how to expose your API correctly. So that's a yeah. uh, huge, you know, I think improvement we made uh, in the .NET 5 space as well. And also a really good idea. Like Azure API management is incredibly useful. It's, it's amazing sometimes to think, Richard, that people don't think about, are people actually calling the APIs? How many yeah, people are yeah. calling them? How fast are they being called? Yeah, what? Right. Yeah. Who's got a runaway process that's calling them and pinning it to the wall? Exactly. You know, um, we, we've, we've had customers that when they, uh, when they've used things like API management, they realize, oh, we've been maintaining these APIs that only get called once, you know, once a month. That's yeah. kind of a sign. Once a year. Things, or, or once a year. Um, yeah. You know, it's part of that. Um, so I think that's a, that's yeah, a, that's a cool addition in the .NET 5 wave. Um, then I've got two more that are that are kind of cool too, which is, um, have you had Matt on to talk about C-Sharp 9 at all? No, he's on my list, but I haven't gotten to him yet. I, we, we talked to him before at ship, but not after. Um, uh, you're, you're both developers, and so you probably have done this a million times. How many of us have files mm -hmm. in our C-Sharp applications that just have reams of structures or classes? And all they are is get set, get set, get set, get set on, you know, like 30 properties. Yep. yep. And you have, you know, and, and one of my pre-Microsoft projects that I worked on, I we probably had, we had a library that all it was was just 100 files with that stuff in there. And uh, my favorite cool feature in C-Sharp 9 is records, um, where yeah. I can just write that in one line now. I can write uh, a record, call it person, and give it a constructor that takes a first name, a last name, a date of birth, um, and an address. And I don't have that's I'm done. That's it. So the whole whole yep. class was written in one line of code, and I got the get sets for all those all those properties automatically. Um, I can write some constructor code if I want as well. Um, but we we showed Scott Hansman and I showed a demo of that, that where we took an app and and took like twenty lines of code and and compressed it down to one line of code. Um, and I think that's. That's the stuff that makes developers' lives easier. There's there's way more in C sharp nine than just that. But that is my yeah. favorite one. I saw Mads and uh, Dustin Campbell demoing that at .NET Conf, and uh, mm -hmm. the thing that you know the number one question was like, "Can I use these wherever I use a class?" And the answer is yes, right? Because it it's a it's a superset of a class, isn't it? So it is a class, uh, but it's just got some nice yeah. stuff around it. Semantics. Semantics. Yeah. Um, the other, the other cool feature in, in C sharp nine, the other, there's more, there's more, there's lots of features, but, mm. uh, the one that, uh, uh, a lot of us have really embraced is top level programs. And that's where you can get rid of all the program main, uh, the, the default class, uh, Richard Lander on the team who works in the IOT space in .NET, uh, basically went through and rewrote every IOT uh, sample app we had and removed all that cruft. Um, and so they all turn into like, 10 to 12 lines of code things to go, you know, turn LEDs on and off mm -hmm. or to read a temperature from a, from a, from a thermometer uh, or, or and that kind of stuff. And so that's, um, I've shown that before in the case of writing a microservice where, Hey, I just want to write, I want to write two APIs and I want to write them in 10 lines of code. I don't need a lot of ceremony around stuff. And so uh, um, a lot of cool stuff there too. Yeah. We're, we're used to, you know, sub main args. Okay. So that's we we know to expect that. Then just take it away. I like that feature. So when are we going to get .NET five dot one the like a the long term uh, support version? Uh, there is no long term support version of .NET five, Richard. We're going to ship .NET six in November of twenty twenty one, and that will be our next LTS. Oh, because it, I mean, this has sort of been the cadence, right? You did two, then you do two one, then of course there's two two. Let's not talk about that. Then there's a three, then there's a three one, and and the and the dot O's were always the short term one, and the dot ones were the long term support editions. And Why then are you messing with the formula, Mr. Hunter? <laughs> and, well, and then it got more confusing, Richard, because we had a 2.2 in the case of, of, of uh, yes. .NET Core 2, and it was not long-term support. 
Um, no. And it didn't live very long because .NET Core 3.0 came out very, very, very shortly after that. Mm. I mean, yeah, and I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the conservative folks that have been taking their time moving from the standard framework, being told that .NET 5. And we said this on the show. It's like this is the time you're going to want to move. And now they've got to deal with this idea that of the whole concept of long-term support versus the short-term version. Although short-term is a relative concept, right? All short-term really means is three months after the next version, it's going to go out of support. It's not going to burst into flames. <laughs> you know, it's not going to explode. It's just like, we don't support that anymore. Move to the next one. The, right. But it's still, I think people are afraid of it. I was just on a call with a with a customer yesterday morning, and we were having this discussion. Mm-hmm. They're building a new app, and they're like, "Hey, do we do three one? Do we do five zero? Do we wait for six? Um, and I think we landed on why don't you use five zero? Um, one of our goals in .NET moving forward is, you know, as you as you mentioned, Richard, we want to clear up the whole dot one dot two kind of stuff, um, and right. that's why we we move to an annual cadence. So we we ship a version every year. Um, mm-hmm. and every other one's an LTS. So this year is not an LTS. Next year will be an LTS. And people might ask, Scott, why do you do that? Um, and I'll be very frank. Our goal is to only have two LTSs running at a single time. So uh-huh. right now, right. there is the 2.1 LTS and the 3.1 LTS. Um, n- next year, when .NET 6 ships, there'll be the 6.0 LTS and the 3.1 LTS. Um, and that's because there's a cost for my team to maintain sure. a version over many years. Um, and we kind of decided as a team, we only wanted to have two of those at the same time. If I go back to the .NET... Well, an LTS still only means three years, right? This is not 10-year support. This is three-year support. So if you're running a version every year anyway... Yes. It almost doesn't mean anything LTS anymore because it realistically it means it, it's just going to go, you know, by the time you, you, you have to keep paying attention. You don't get to ignore a piece of software for 10 years anymore. Mm. That, that is what we hope people realize um, is right. what I don't want people to do. And, and first off, we already had success with .NET Core already, where most of our people stay on the latest version. 3.1 in just a few weeks mm-hmm. was the majority of, of .NET Core usage. And we're hoping with .NET 5, it, it follows that same pattern. We want our customers to stay on the, the latest versions. Um, you know, the longer right. you... If, if you stay on an old version for too long, you know, historically customers would stay, you know, build an application, stay on an old version for like five years. And then when they came to move, it was hard to move because they are moving across yeah. five years of changes. Um, yeah, and yeah. so, yeah. you know, as we've all adopted, you know, you're, you both are super aware of this. Even back in 2010, I remember our CICD process in Microsoft for building Visual Studio was we would integrate like every six months. And then it would take mm-hmm. us months to fix the integration. Um, yep. And now we move to a model where we actually integrate daily. And so we never get that far behind that it takes us six months to, to fix that. And I hope that as people use .NET, they think the same way. It's like, you know, like the, the customer I spoke to yesterday, if you build it on five, uh, the switch to six should take minutes, if not an hour. Should be trivial. Yeah. November of yeah. next year happens. And so what's the risk to you? And then the other weird thing that I think customers forget, and, and uh, this is, you, you nailed this, Richard, when you said, we don't build software where you write something and forget about it. Even if you write something in and say like 3.1, mm-hmm. uh, you're using .NET Core 3.1, it's the LTS build. We ship a new one every month. Yeah. Um, with security fixes and bug fixes and reliability fixes. And so I, I challenge it, it's, it's, I, you, you know, why are you on the long-term support version if you're not rebuilding it every month anyway? Hmm. It, it, even more so, if you call support, the first thing they will do is require you to be on the latest version of the long-term support version before they'll even take your ticket. Obviously. Hmm. Because yeah. this you is might have already fixed whatever your issue is. Um, yeah. And so if you're staying up-to-date every month, you should be able to stay up-to-date across five to six, six to seven, seven to eight. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just that you mm-hmm. said a change in the way we build software. We used to literally build software. We would build it, put it away, and not think about it ever again for five or six years. Well, you'd, you'd burn it to a DVD, right? Like it was <laughs> permanent. And then that's just not true anymore. Now they're all cup holders, right? They're not DVD players anymore. Like they, I'd put a label on mine. This is where you put the coffee. In the few minutes we have left, I got to ask you about mobile, Blazor mobile bindings, because I kind of see this as sort of the, the future of Blazor is going to phones. 
So, um, tell me about that. What's going on in that space? Um, that space is, I, I think of it a little different than that, Carl. Um, okay. I think the bigger one that's, that's, that's interesting to us right now is what we want to do is we want to take in the .NET 6 wave, we want to build a Blazor WebView tag into the XAML inside of a Xamarin application. Okay. Which means you can host a Blazor app inside of your Xamarin app. I love it. Um, the, the, the first first primary thinking there is um, I want to build uh, like the, the dry cleaner example I was using before. Hmm. Well, how would you take a, if you wrote that app in Blazor, but you wanted to have you wanted to have access to the uh, local hardware? Right. Well, how do you do that? Well, a lot of applications outside of .NET use Electron to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to make a .NET customer have to go down the Electron no. path. For folks that don't know Electrons, Node.js and uh, Chromium Big. and stuff like that, I would rather let the .NET person stay in the .NET space completely. And so we think let, letting you put Blazor inside of a, a Xamarin application will get you onto the desktop. Yeah, it makes sense because you can dig into the the platform specific stuff you don't have to rewrite that for blazer you just make a new blazer ui for for xamarin i love it that's perfect and, and people might ask well why would you build a web app if you want to have access to native stuff the programming model Well, because you can build that once and work on both windows and mac yeah and potentially ios and android uh with the same ui without having to write the ui four different times and so it is still a Savings of UI. And let's face it, the Blazor component model is the most elegant UI model I've ever worked with. It's elegant. It makes you hmm. work faster. I built that website that I showed Richard the other night, a little .NET rocks test with components in like two hours. It was done, published on Azure. I, I give credit to that to the Blazor team, especially Steve Sanderson, who's yeah. you know has a huge history of, of writing web frameworks, you know, Knockout JS and more. Um, and just just like .NET Core, much of our tech is taking the learnings from the last ten years of stuff, um, and and building a better product by you know learning from those those the challenges we've seen in those spaces and removing the cruft. Thank you very much. Ah, yeah. uh, guys, I think we're out of time. I, I could change subjects and go into a bunch of three more things, but I think we need to wrap up. We could talk about rockets all day, Richard. I know we could. Well, there's that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always, and uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a